really struck me just uh, in the first service, of course, in the second service, we're singing the same songs, but just how our singing today, all the songs have really drawn us in to focus on the gospel, God's love for us. Let me ask you, how did you respond last week to the vision for 2022? Love like Jesus. As Pastor Greg challenged us, both as individuals and as a church community, what did you start thinking about? What, what were you feeling? What started rolling through your mind? If you're like me, you may have been processing it uh, on a spectrum. First, there's the motivational sentiment. Like, wow, look at how Jesus has loved me. Of course I want to love Him back, and I want to have a greater love for others like He calls me to. Think of the difference that loving more like Jesus would make in our lives, in our church community, in our local community. We need to love like Jesus. But then, as time goes on, I kind of go to the other side of the spectrum, the personal reality. Thoughts start crossing my mind like, I haven't done so great with that before. I've wanted to be more like Jesus in my attitudes and actions, but I've come up short so many times, interacting with strangers, interacting with my church family here, interacting with my wife and kids. How could I ever go to the extent of His love anyway? I mean, He's God. Can someone like me even as a Christian, love like Jesus? We need to answer those questions. We need to wrestle with that. And that's the purpose of the next six weeks of messages. With Jesus as our example, we want to look at six simple actions that Jesus' love moved Him to take and how they challenge us. But I'll warn you up front, as my pastor in Pennsylvania used to say, just because something is simple doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. When I was thinking about times where I have experienced the, that love of Jesus from other believers, when I've experienced feeling connected, one memory that immediately came to my mind was pot roast. Now, that may not have been exactly what you were expecting to come out of my mouth in that moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. But let me explain. When I was an assistant pastor in Michigan, the church there hired a new youth pastor. He had a young family, and as we got to know each other, they invited me over for dinner uh, after church one Sunday. And we had pot roast. They took it upon themselves, even with little kids, to invite a single just out of college, young adult, to share a meal with them. They took the first step, even though they didn't have to. And it made a huge impact on my life. Not because there was some issue that I was trying to work through, but simply seeing a godly couple seeking to be godly parents in the craziness of real life as a young family. Over the two years or so that we worked together, they would do that every couple months. 
And do you know what we had 80 to 90% of the time when they invited me over? Pot roast. And it wasn't planned. Sometimes it was a last minute right after church. Oh, let's invite Dave to come over, not even thinking about what they had for lunch that day. I don't know what it was about pot roast that made them think of me. But pot roast was one connection that God used to help me grow as a disciple of Jesus. So, where did this couple learn this powerful way of connecting to others? Well, I'd say Jesus. Jesus was a master at taking the first step toward others, because that is where connection takes place and life change can start. And that's the first simple action that Jesus' love moved him to take. That's what we're going to look at today. Jesus' love caused him to take the first step toward others. We see this love, this characteristic of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Think of Jesus calling the twelve disciples, the woman at the well, Zacchaeus. Over and over we see Jesus taking action to make a connection, to meet a need. This is who Jesus is, and we see Him taking action in the most gripping way through His incarnation and death. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles or open up your app this morning to Philippians chapter 2, where our Scripture reading was. We'll spend most of our time focusing on verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, where we see Jesus taking this action, taking the first step for all of us, for sinful humanity. Let's begin our time in prayer. Father, thank You that Jesus is our example. Thank You that He took the first step toward us because we would never and never have been able to take a step toward You. Thank You for making a way that we could be made right to You, and thank You that it shows us how we can take steps toward others. Lord, help us to see Jesus this morning, I pray, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to what may be a familiar passage, let me caution that we don't forget the overall context that it is in. This is certainly a theologically rich passage, but God did not have Paul write it here to reveal theological tidbits. The Philippians were facing persecution from outside of their church community, and they were also struggling with significant disunity within their church community. How would such a group of believers not implode under the pressure? God's answer? Adopt Jesus' attitude in His incarnation and death. And that's where we find Jesus taking that first step for our salvation. Notice Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, "'Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus.'" Right here, it starts out with a command, let this mind be in you. Jesus' attitude must be our attitude. This is the key to true connection, true community, true love for others. And as we follow through verses 5 through 11, we'll find that it's simple, 
but it is not easy. As we study through these verses, I want to point out to you three characteristics of Jesus' attitude. The first was this, that Jesus didn't have to protect his position. Notice what it says in verse 6. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, right at the very beginning, Paul is very clear, Jesus is God. Before becoming human, Jesus is God. The word that he uses here where he says the form of God, it's the idea of the true and exact nature, possessing all the qualities and characteristics of something. If you wanted the Dave G. theological explanation, I would say if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, talks like a duck, and swims like a duck, it's a duck. Yes, yeah, there's always one, right? Goose. Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal. He has all power, all authority. He exists forever. He is God. But he didn't have to protect that glorious position in a self-serving, self-focused way. It says he was in the form of God, but he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That word robbery there has the idea of like clutching, grasping, out of self-interest, not, you, you can't let it go. That's why the, the New King James translates it robbery. A robber's going to grab something because he wants to keep it for himself. The ESV translates the phrase this way, that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus did not look at us and say, I am so far above them. I am so much better than, than, than them. I am beyond them in every way. I cannot save them because of what it would do to me. Now, is Jesus rightly all those things? Is he rightly beyond us? Is he greater than us? Is he so much more than us? Yes. Could he have rightly protected those things and not come to save us? Yes, he didn't owe us anything. But that's not what he chose. Instead, Jesus looked at us and said, I am so far above them. I am so much better than them. I am beyond them in every way. I am the only one who can save them. And I gladly will, even with what it will do to me. Now, please understand, Jesus' position was never in question. Even as a man, he is still God in every way. That never changed. But he willingly accepted being overlooked, misunderstood, made fun of, attacked, hated, slighted, beaten, crucified, and ultimately he suffered to pay the punishment for our sin, something that God should never have to do. All of those things. He's the one who deserves to be lifted up. He should not have to step down. But he did, because that's who he is. He willingly did that for us. And in our church community, what position or opinion are you holding on to, maybe out of self-interest, that keeps you from reaching out for the benefit of others? Maybe there's a brother or sister at Christ 
in Christ here that you won't reach out to because you know they have a different opinion about something. Maybe it's a neighbor who has a different political persuasion. You know from the yard signs that are out there. And what do we do? We say, well, oh, you know, I've got to protect that position. I've got to protect. <laughs> Jesus didn't have to protect his position. The second characteristic of his attitude that we see is that Jesus chose to act in the most humble ways. Notice verse 7, it says, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That first act was he became human. Now, pause just a moment and try to wrap your mind around what it must be like to be God. Probably if you try to do that, your brain starts hurting. It's kind of frying as you're… It's like, I, uh, there's no way that I can wrap my mind around it. But then compare that to what it is like to be human. To go from being dependent on no one to entrusting yourself to a young couple named Mary and Joseph. From being revered by all in heaven to being overlooked by most on earth from never being tired to taking a nap in the back of a boat because you're exhausted. <laughs> I certainly don't understand how all of that works while he's still 100% God. But Paul's point here is not to explain the theological mysteries that go into that. His point is to help us grasp the humble action that Jesus' love moved him to take. Jesus what does it say? Made himself of no reputation. The idea there is it's, he made himself a nobody. He had all the glory. He had all the attributes, but he didn't have to make for sure all of you did. <laughs> all those around him did. He still had them, but he made himself a nobody. He went from everything to nothing willingly. What does that look like? It says that he took on the form of a bondservant. The word form here comes from the same Greek word as verse 6, where uh, Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. In the same way that Jesus is truly God, he became a true servant of others. He wasn't putting on a show it wasn't just something he had to do. No, he truly became a servant for us. And this involved becoming human. It says that he came in the likeness of men. Now, likeness doesn't focus on like how he looked or his appearance. The word refers to his essential nature. He truly became human like you and me. This was a massive step of humble love. I tried to think about, like, what example would help, help us wrap our minds around this, and I'd have to say I didn't come up with a really good one. I came up with one. I'll show it to you. I know it falls apart in so many ways, but let's say that I owned Niagara Falls, and I told you I want to give you Niagara Falls. Which would you choose? This? Or this? 
this with all of the glory, majesty, power. It's awesome, right? Or something that you would put on a shelf and probably forget to dust for two years. Which would you choose? Jesus chose to become human. And then he chose to die. Notice verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I mean, wasn't becoming human enough? What, what a step! No, it wasn't. Because of our need, our sin. Becoming human wasn't enough to save us. It starts out right there in verse 8, he was found in appearance as a man. Again, not focusing on, on looks. It's focusing on the fact that he truly possessed everything that makes someone human. He could be our substitute because he is one of us. And once Jesus had taken the lovingly humble step to become human, he took another unfathomable step of loving humility, and he accepted death. The one who is life died in your place, died in my place because of your sin and my sin. And he accepted the lowest, most humiliating death for that time, death on a cross. Thielman notes in his commentary on Philippians that in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was commonly used for slaves. It was rarely used on Roman citizens. To the Philippians, Philippi being a Roman colony, death on a cross would have been seen as even lower than being a slave. So not only does he willingly take the lowest position, he takes a step below that. Jesus chose to act in the most humble ways. For us in our church community, what humble acts do you need to do to reach out for the benefit of someone else? Maybe it's serving children here in our church. Maybe it's visiting the nursing home. Maybe it's just meeting your neighbor for the first time. A humble act in the way that Jesus would. Third characteristic that we find here is that Jesus trusted that his Father exalts the humble. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it can seem a, a bit of a shift here, right? Because we're focusing on, on love. We're focusing on humility. What's this about God, the Father, lifting Him up? Well, no, this is still in the passage that's telling us this is the mindset you need to have. This is the attitude 
you need to have. And what it's identifying is that Jesus did not take these massive steps of loving humility in uncertainty, but with full trust in His Father's character. Because Jesus knows that God graciously lifts up the humble. We see it throughout Scripture, multiple passages. Let me just highlight a few. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, 34, surely God scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 18, really focusing on salvation, right relationship with God. Notice it says, also Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now notice what he's focusing on. I'm not that bad of a guy. Look at him over there. I'm not like these people. Isn't that how we can wrestle with our relationship with God? particularly if you've never put your trust in Jesus for salvation. I'm a good person, right? Jesus goes on. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that can be a stumbling block when it comes to putting your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Because we want to say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person, when what it takes is humbling yourself to say, I'm a sinner. I deserve the judgment that comes, but I need God's mercy. And God, please forgive me because Jesus died on the cross for me. Not only did Jesus teach this, but we also see that it was key to church community. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. It even impacts how we as believers approach suffering. 1 Peter 4, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Jesus lived this trust when He became human and died for us. Notice in 1 Peter 2, it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who, when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. The idea of committed is he entrusted himself. Father, I am trusting myself to you. 
who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus knew exactly who he was trusting. Now, please understand, this is not some magic formula. God, I humbled myself, so you better. That is never what Jesus did. That's called manipulation, not real trust. So I kind of tried to put it in my own words. So this is a David Gism. This trust is doing what God calls you to, believing that God's got your back, but not telling God how he has to have your back. It's doing what God calls you to, believing that God's got your back. He lifts up the humble, but not telling God how he has to have your back. For our church, for us, when it comes to taking a step toward others that requires making yourself vulnerable, we can easily forget this about God. And when we forget that we can trust Him to lift up those humble acts, those times where we're not seeking to protect ourselves. When we forget that, it makes simple, hard actions intimidating and exhausting. Because now I'm trying to protect my back, and I'm not free to love like Jesus. Think about it. What if Pastor Dan came up to you and said, hey, you're helping out in teen life this Wednesday? Well, uh, uh, you know, um, I mean, teens are scary. Yeah, guess what? Adults are scary too. But t- teens are scary, and, and, and I would want them to, th- you know, think the best of me, and I, I would want them to be impressed. I, uh, you know, I, I want them to think I'm cool. Do they even use the word cool anymore? I don't know. I, I'm being lighthearted there, right? <laughs> but I've been in those situations, and what do we do? I'm starting to try to protect myself. I'm trying to protect what others think of me, and I'm not free to love like Jesus. How about welcoming newcomers to your Bible study or life group, truly making them feel welcome and and a part that you want them there? Well, but but what if I find out that they're different than me or that they they have a different opinion about something than I do? Then what are we doing? We're not looking to humbly serve We're trying to protect our opinions. How about getting to know your lesbian neighbors? Stay away from that. How, How would I even start? We're not looking at how to serve, how to love like Jesus. We're trying to protect ourselves. Looking at Jesus' attitude in his incarnation and death shows us how to take steps into someone else's world, even one that may be completely unlike our own. It involves recognizing that you don't have to protect opinions, positions, or how others view you, because those were never supposed to define you anyway. Your relationship with Jesus is what is supposed to define you, 
The gospel is what is supposed to define you. That's why we say the gospel is for every person at every moment. It's not just to get saved and then you do something else. It's all of our life. This trust involves acting in the most humble ways, dying to yourself for the sake of someone else. But it also involves an active trust that God draws close to and lifts up those who lovingly humble themselves. This attitude, this type of love, is not something that God calls us to live without Him. But you might say, Dave, yes, Jesus' attitude, His love, His humility, it's truly amazing. We should stand in awe of Him and what He has done for us. But is that really how we're supposed to connect with others? Jesus' attitude is a great example to think about, but can we really live that out in our church community? And how could we really live it out in our everyday life? Well, we looked at Jesus' action. Jesus' love caused him to take the first step toward others. Here's the challenge. So loving like Jesus will move us to create connections with others. Look back at verse 5 with me in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We've noted the command. This is the attitude that you need to have. And in English, when we read that phrase of that verse, it can sound like something to internalize or mentally wrestle with. And that is not at all what Paul was saying. When he says, in you, Paul uses a Greek idiom for social contexts. You could translate it more precisely as among yourselves. Let this mind be in you, let this mind be among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't mean among yourselves, sitting in a room, listening to a sermon. It means... Among yourselves... Glad you got back safe, brother. Among yourselves. Good to see you this morning. Ethan, among yourselves. All right? Big, among yourselves. Brother, among yourselves. While you are together, interacting with each other, living life together, this is the mindset you need. Because look at the context, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others." Now, as you follow the flow of Philippians, at the end of chapter 1, Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers to endurance and unity in the face of suffering and attack from outside their church community. When he gets to chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, he's not asking the question like, do these things exist in a body of believers? Because the Philippians have been experiencing it. 
They've been experiencing attacks from outside, and they've been finding encouragement from each other, encouragement from the Lord. They've been encouraged as they've reflected on God's Word, as another believer reminded them of something of God's Word, as another believer helped them. He's using this in a rhetorical way to stir up the memories. They're saying, yes, absolutely, I have experienced this. This is true. And these are great joys, but there's more to grow in. Notice what he says in verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Fulfill my joy is a command. It's the command that actually governs verses 1 through 4. Verses 3 and 4 can look like commands, but that's not the command. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. What is this like-mindedness? Look up at chapter 1, verse 27. It says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is being focused, being united in focus on the gospel. What does that look like? How does he go on in verse 2? Being like-minded, having the same love. Love like Jesus. As a believer, you have experienced the love of Jesus for you. Now have it toward others. It looks like connecting to others. What does he say? With one accord, working together for the sake of the gospel. We say our mission is make and mature disciples working together. Outside attacks can be dangerous for a church community, but just as dangerous are those divided self-interests from within. And that's where Paul is drawing them in verses 3 and 4. He's unpacking what maturing means. He says, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. That's the idea of putting oneself forward, having a partisan spirit. Here's one that we'll understand in New Hampshire, electioneering. It's what you say to others to get people on your side, to get a following. Well, these people agree with me about this issue. These people, you know, and, and, and this is what I think, and so you want to you help me, right? It, it's creating that partisanship. He says, do, do nothing out of that. Or, what do they say? Conceit. This is empty pride, groundless self-esteem. It's what you tell yourself. Well, you know, I, I know better about them than that situation. I, uh, I've studied that more. They don't know what they're talking about. It's building yourself up in your own mind. And he says, do nothing from that, but let each esteem others better than themselves in a lowliness of mind. Well, what does that look like? Jesus, verses 5 through 11. It's that when you're in an issue, it's taking the time and saying, am I valuing this person? Is my position or opinion more important than hers, biblically? Do I really want to understand what he's saying, or am I just trying to tell him what I think? What makes this issue so important to her? 
That's lowliness of mind. It's esteeming others. And then he says to look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. Well, what do those type of actions look like? We know. Jesus, verses 5 through 11. I tried to, I tried to come up with some ways. Like, how could I make this memorable so that when we're in the moment, when there's that issue in, and I'm tempted toward, toward uh, partisanship or self-building up in my own mind, how, how can we remember that? To stop and think of the interests of others. And I realized that God had already given us that in verse 4. It says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. With the same importance that, it's, that it grips you with, consider that importance for others, for the other person. So how does that work? Let me, let me give you some examples. You know, I wish someone would invite me over to get to know them. Ding! There's an opportunity. You know, there's probably someone that I could invite over, someone who's, who's looking for that, who needs that connection. You know, I wish someone would call me and pray with me. Ding! Maybe I should grab the directory and give that person a call. Why doesn't someone get the nursery staff for both services? Ding! <laughs> Maybe there's some people I can serve. You know, no one has really talked to me this morning at church. Ding! Let me look down the row and see who's there. Why didn't they play a song that I liked today? Ding! You know what? There's others who are ministered to, someone who is ministered to and pulled out of a pit of despair because of that. When we have those times where an issue that is important to me or to you is peaked, see that as God's opportunity to lovingly consider how that issue might touch the life of someone else, even the life of someone you may disagree with, and humbly see if there is someone that you can serve through that issue. 1 John chapter 3 sums this up so powerfully, this whole idea. It says, By this we know love, because Jesus laid down His life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So, when you see Pastor Dave about to be hit by a car in the parking lot, run and shove him out of the way, and you get hit instead. Isn't that laying your life down for a brother in Christ? No one said amen to shoving me out of the way from a car. It could look like that, but if you're familiar with your passage, you know the example that he connects it to. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Yes, Jesus laid down his life. He died for us. So that, and that serves as an example, not that we die for each other, you might, but so that we know what laying down our lives looks like. It might look like giving to someone in need. 
practical every day laying down our lives. So practically, as we come into 2022, the 2022 vision, as we seek to take the first step in creating connections with others, we aim to. These are just some key goals. There are others. You'll see these on the website. We aim to do this. One, develop a fully staffed hospitality team. You've seen the Connection Center coming together back there. They're going to be looking for people to be involved, to, to talk to people there, to reach out to people, so that we really take a first step when they come to church on a Sunday. Two, we're going to host one outreach initiative to the local community. This could be some type of an event. It might be meeting a need in the community, but in the sense of reaching out. Three, we want to host VBS off-site in the local community, going to parks or recreation areas. Maybe if you have a giant backyard in in a big neighborhood, let us know. Four, have the majority of our church personally meet with two individuals or families that you don't know. And I'd say you can start cheating on number four right now. Don't wait. for <laughs> Get to know someone. Now, we'll set up some way where maybe a quarterly survey or something on the website where you can communicate back connections, testimonies. But taking steps the first step to make a connection. We've seen Jesus' action. His love caused him to take the first step toward others. So, loving like Jesus will move us to create connections with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Jesus. we can see what true love looks like, what true humility looks like, what true trust looks like in you. Thank you that this type of love is not something where you say, yep, go do it. Let me know how it goes. No, you want us to walk with you in these steps. You want us to remember that you lift up the humble. And when we trust you for that, it frees us to love like Jesus. Help us as a church, as individuals, to seek adopt Jesus' attitude into our interactions with each other, to our interactions with our local community, in our interactions with those who annoy us. Thank you that you free us for that. We need your help to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.